Let's head to our southern border to visit a national park that shares 118 miles with Mexico and is home to archaeological sites dating back nearly 10,000 years. A park where you can see as much at night as you can during the day. Join us as we explore Big Bend National Park. I'm your host, Missy Rents, and this is the Parks Podcast. Today's guest is Tom Vandenberg, Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at Big Bend National Park and Rio Grande Wild and Scenic River in Texas. Tom, welcome to the Parks Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I want to start with some stats on the park. Big Bend is located in Big Bend, Texas in Brewster County. It's the 27th park created on June 12th, 1944, when Franklin Roosevelt was the president of the United States. The park is 801,183 acres. The highest elevation is Emory Peak at 7,832 feet. The lowest elevation is the Rio Grande River at 1,715 feet. In 2022, there were 516,000 people that came to visit the park. And some other interesting facts There's 118 miles that forms the border between the U.S. and Mexico. It protects 1,200 species of plants, more than 450 birds, 56 species of reptiles, 75 species of mammals, and the park contains 200 miles of hiking trails. This is an incredible park. That's a lot of facts and figures. It's pretty amazing. It's a follow-up to some of those cool facts. You mentioned that the park was established in June of 1944. That's true. We're actually the only national park that was established during World War II, which is pretty awesome. The deed crossed the president's desk on June 6, 1944, which was the day of the D-Day invasion. So you can think back to crazy times of tumult and uncertainty. Long ago, President Roosevelt took a few minutes out of his crazy day and thought about this place. And people knew even then that places like Big Bend were important. Needed to be set aside for the future. We're glad that so many forward-thinking people supported that idea. Big Bend is sometimes referred to as Texas' gift to the nation. Land was obtained by the state of Texas for a specific donation to the federal government as a national park. We're the 14th largest national park. You mentioned over 800,000 acres. It's about 1,200 square miles, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and visitors are rising, which just shows how people are responding to the need, the desire to get away from things and to find a place of isolation and solitude. And Big Ben provides that in abundance. We were a big destination during the pandemic. More and more people are finding this park as the years go by. You mentioned some of the diversity of the species, the plants, the birds. It is one of the most diverse of all of our national parks. More species of birds, more species of bats, butterflies, reptiles, cactus, even ants of any national park. So it's pretty awesome. You mentioned 200 miles of hiking trails. We also have something that's kind of unique in national parks. We have almost 150 miles of dirt roads that people just get out and kind of get out into the back of beyond and explore if they have the right type of vehicles. So really the the backcountry concept at Big Bend is really prominent. 
Yeah, you know, there's wonderful paved roads to Scenic Drive and explore, and most people will stay on those, but the park offers so many different kinds of opportunities. And so if you're really looking to get away from it all and you just want to get out and be by yourself and not see anyone for a few days, we actually have primitive campsites strewn out along some of these remote Jeep roads in the backcountry, and they provide the type of isolation and, and solitude that is just becoming almost impossible to find. Most national parks have a specific reason for its creation. It might be the historical event, or maybe it's preservation of a natural habitat or an animal species or something like that. Big Bend is fascinating to me because it contains a lot of characteristics that are worth preserving. Was there a specific tipping point that led to the country making it a national park? Well, this whole place was really unknown. It was sparsely settled. It was very hard to get to until the late 1800s when a few families began settling and ranching out in this area. And even then, it was very much unknown. There were a few proponents back in the day that really fell in love with this place. One of them was a gentleman named Everett Townsend, who at one point was a Texas Ranger and a mounted customs officer and later actually a state representative. He was a Brewster County Sheriff. He was kind of a who's who back in the day of remote West Texas. And he loved this place so much and devoted much of the latter years of his life to getting the word out about it because people just, even people in Texas didn't even know this part of Texas existed. Who knew there were mountains in Texas, you know? Due to his efforts and some of his associates, the word slowly started getting out in the early 1930s that there was this special place out here. And the state of Texas established a state park and encompassed much of what's the park in the 1930s, but really wanted it to be a national park at the time. You know, that was a big deal back in the 30s. The Shenandoah National Park was being established and the same sort of strategy where the states really wanted a national park within their boundaries. It was a feather in their cap. It was also a way to ensure that this destination would be funded by the federal government. And it would also, it was seen as a potential boon to tourism and economy in very remote places. So the National Park Service didn't know anything about this place either, but hmm. they sent a team down here in the early 1930s and they were just kind of blown away with what was here. And in 1935, the National Park Service Congress acted and approved legislation to establish Big Bend National Park. That was in 1935, but there was no money. There was no land. It was just like, yeah, state of Texas, if you can obtain this land, we'd love to have a national park in the Big Bend area. And it took the state of Texas, you know, over seven years to raise the money and obtain the land that now is, is Big Bend. It actually cost about a million and a half dollars, which was a wow. lot of money back in the day. But that was essentially the beginning of the park. The park was established in 1944, and it's just been crazy ever since. So the first year, about 1,400 visitors came. And like you said, this last year, over a half a million visitors. And it's funny because back at the time when they were promoting this idea of having a national park in this rural part of West Texas that you know, the promoters were saying, you know, one day we will. I think the National Park Service does an amazing job telling the stories of the park. In particular, this park, there's so much history dating back 
a thousand years, 2000 years, and then 10,000 with the archeological digs. But one of the features that I loved was, and please correct my pronunciation, Chattasada, the restaurant in the Rio Grande village. And I just tried, I'll let you tell the story of it, but I just tried to imagine that time period and how desolate it was. Yet there was this restaurant that was so popular. Well, there were communities all up and down the river. There were many more people living here back around the early 1900s than there even live here today. Uh, wow. There were mining interests in what's now the backcountry of the park. There's mercury mining, and there were small family farms all up and down the Rio Grande, all the way from you know the eastern side of what's now the park, all the way up to near like Trilingua, where the there was a large mining district, and that was an industry. It was the, there was candelia harvesting for the wax that's used. It's a small desert plant that's harvested in remote areas, and there were little communities that built up all through some of the backcountry areas near springs where they processed that plant to obtain this high-quality wax. So there were little communities and towns sprinkled all through this area long before it was a national park. Those people had a very strong connection to the land, They've been here for generations. And uh, when the Park Service came along and the state of Texas began purchasing land, many of them sold willingly. It was during the Depression and people weren't very well off in some of these places financially. And others, you know, they'd been here for a couple of generations already, had really strong ties to this land and weren't maybe super happy about selling, maybe proud to be part of this effort to highlight and establish this place and, and showcase it with the world, also kind of heartbreaking at the time. So there are remains of settlements and homes and ranches, and there's mm. graveyards strewn throughout the backcountry of the park. Anywhere you go, that history is there, whether it's the remains of an early restaurant or a little village or an old model tea truck out in the middle of the desert. All these things are out there for people to discover. And it just, like you said, it's a neat part of the park and it it's more than just geology and birds and desert plants and scenery. This place has been a home for, for people for thousands of years. And so that's, you can find evidence of that almost anywhere you go. So I want to highlight a couple of these areas and you, maybe you can give a little description of what they are, what there is to do. Chisos Basin. Yeah, the Chisos Basin is in the mountainous heart of the park. It's higher up than the rest of the park. The road in, you pass about 6,000 feet. And then you drop down into the basin. It's kind of a misnomer because we say it's the basin, but it's actually high. It's up high in the mountains. It's a bowl surrounded by high volcanic peaks at about 5,500 feet in elevation. So it is the kind of year-round full-service destination, you know, visitor-developed area in the park. So there's a visitor center there. There's a lodge there with motel rooms. There's a camper store, there's a restaurant, campgrounds, two campgrounds, and just like tremendous hiking trails heading off into all directions. It's higher up than most than the rest of the park, so it's cooler, usually by 10 or often over 20 degrees cooler than most of the lower elevation parts of the park. So like, for instance, we're speaking today, it's June, and as we speak, it's probably about 120. 10 degrees along the Rio Grande in June. Oh. And at park headquarters where I am, it's about 100 and 
106 or something right now, maybe 105. And then up in the Chisos, it's probably in the low 90s. So it makes a big difference. That is a big difference. Panther Junction. Panther Junction is kind of the main, so park headquarters. It's the main visitor center that's open year round. It's our full service, largest visitor center. And it's where our administrative offices, our little post office. It's also our, where park employees live at Panther Junction. Believe it or not, we all live here in the national park. It's a long way to get anywhere from here. It's probably one of the remote, remote postings in the whole National Park Service outside of some Alaska postings. We're pretty self-sufficient here in the civil community. There's about 200 people that live here in Panther Junction. It's park employees and their families. There's a few Border Patrol families that live here, some of the concession employees. And then we even have a school at Panther Junction for the kids that, that grow up in Big Bend National Park. What a so, great spot to grow up. Wow. Yeah, it's a neat spot. Yeah, I, I raised two two kids here in Panther Junction. It was pretty magical years. So Rio Grande Village. Rio Grande Village is down along the river and on the east side of the park, as far as you can drive eastward in the park. And it's our largest campground. It's also where we have an an RV park. So people that like to camp with their big RVs and like to have full hookups and all that sort of thing, that would be a good destination for folks that seek out that experience. It's near the river, so there's a boat ramp there for river trips. There's a visitor center that's open in the winter months. There's some wonderful trails. Kias Canyon, the Hot Springs area is near there, a historic area. And we also have a port of entry there. So, you know, Big Bend borders Mexico for over 100 miles. And uh, whatever direction you point, as long as it's not straight north, you're facing Mexico in Big Bend National Park. And one of our little border communities is a village called Boquillas. And it's right across the Rio Grande from Rio Grande Village. We have a port of entry there. So visitors like to come and cross over and spend the day in Mexico and go to a little restaurant and practice their Spanish, have a taco, experience another culture for the day. It's pretty kind of a magical experience. Very unique among national parks, that's for sure. I'm going to need you to correct my pronunciation if these are wrong. Castellone Historic District? Castellone is on the west side of the park and was one of those centers of activity in the early agricultural days. So there are old buildings in Castellone, the oldest standing adobe structure in the park. The Alvino House is over 100 years old. Our old visitor center, there's a store, a little ranger station, and a wonderful campground nearby uh, in Castellone. And in the areas nearby are amazing historic sites, old buildings, graveyards, the remains of little Mexican settlers' villages, and the Rio Grande flows right by. And in the distance is Santa Elena Canyon, which is one of the park's big attractions. It's a big 1,500-foot vertical chasm carved by the Rio through solid limestone. And it's a, it's a wonderful place to visit, whether you're just walking around the entrance and exploring the riverbanks or maybe taking a couple of days to float through the canyon. It's, it's pretty cool, pretty magical spot. And it's so important. The parks often talk about leave no trace, which is, you know, picking up your trash and stuff. But I think in sites like this, it's also important not to go and disturb these, these relics that are throughout the park so that we can yeah. all enjoy them for generations. Yeah, that's important to remember as you're enjoying the park and hiking around and maybe finding evidence of people that were the long, that lived there long before, whether it's 
you know, a stone flake on the ground that had been chipped or a grinding stone or some rock art or a horseshoe or part of an old fence line or a rock house. Enjoy them and take pictures of them and look at them all you want and feel the thrill of discovery. But then leave it there for others to, to enjoy as well. All artifacts in all national parks are protected and they're part of our national heritage. And in national parks, we do all we can to take care of them and allow people to enjoy them, but want to provide future generations with that same experience. When I went on a, a year-long trip and went to all these national parks around the country, the questions that I got asked the most were about how do you go to a park? I don't even know how to go to a park. So I want to guide people on how to plan a trip to Big Bend. And the, the first thing that I thought was so intimidating when I would go to these big parks is they have multiple entrances. I don't even know which entrance is best to go into. So maybe you could just break down, depending on how I'm coming, how I'm planning my trip, what entrance do I go in? It doesn't matter what entrance, just get here, right? Well, I think the main thing there that you said, which is really good, is that you're planning your trip. That is important, especially in a park like Big Bend. We're not on the way to anything, right? This is a destination, but it is surprising nowadays how many people will just show up without much planning. And they're surprised at things when they show up. You know, none of this should be a surprise to you. It's a desert. And if you show up in July and June, it is going to be really, really hot in some places. And not all of our facilities are open in the middle of, of June or July. So planning your visit. And I would say, you know, the best source of information is on the official National Park webpage. There's a lot of misinformation out there online. Anybody can put a webpage or a social media feed together. But if you really want to know the accurate information, what's open, what the hours are of things, what are the highlights to do, you know, really, really visit the National Park webpage or the park app. You know, National Parks all have an app as well. And if you go on the website, you can usually download the current visitor guide, all that sort of thing. So yeah, planning your visit and being prepared for Big Bend is super important. There's two entrances to the park. One's in the north, one's in the west. And, uh, you know, doesn't really matter which one you use. Just uh, just come and visit and maybe stop off at Panther Junction to begin with. Again, that's our full service main visitor center. And we have rangers that are there every day of the year to help you plan your visit, whether it's, you know, one day or, or a week or more. That's what we're here to do welcome you to your park and, and help you get the most out of your visit. And the peak season for Big Bend is October to April? Yeah, that's important as well. You know, we are open year round for sure, but our main season, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, October through the end of April is our prime season. So it's a winter park. You know, there are winter parks and there are some parks that are primarily summer parks. So just like you may not want to visit Gates of the Arctic in the middle of winter, you know, and they slow down a lot and they don't have a lot going on in the middle of winter. Big Bend also in many ways slows down and we don't have full services in the middle of the summer just because of, of the heat. It's somewhat challenging. Yeah. So yeah, we're a winter park and in the winter time, it is amazing here. If you were to come during those months, it is 
you know, the nicest weather in the country. We, we look at the weather reports and we talk to all the snow and the blizzards up north and we just laugh because it's, you know, 70 degrees every day down here in Big Bend and nice and sunny and cool at night and perfect for hiking and camping and exploring. People are coming during the busiest times of the year, those times I mentioned. It might be good to be flexible. You know, if the one trail you really wanted to go to, gosh, the parking lot's kind of full right now. The park is too big and there's too many great places to go to. It's kind of heartbreaking to see someone just kind of like sitting like in line to try to get to one trail and a half a mile down the road, there's another one that's just as awesome. Be flexible and have a couple of options and backup plans. It's the one or two things you really wanted to see that one day. We're kind of busy, so be flexible. I think it's important that people know that they're going to have to kind of disconnect when they get here. They don't have a lot of cell service. It's kind of spotty. You may not have all the services that you're accustomed to. That's what makes Big Ben so special. A lot of people travel with their pets. Can you bring your dog to Big Bend National Park? You know, you can bring your pet to Big Bend National Park. That's fine. But it does kind of limit you because we don't allow dogs on trails. And that's really one of the top things that people come to do is, is to hike and explore. So your dog, it's allowed anywhere vehicles can go. So you can walk it around along the roads or up and down the dirt roads and things like that, but they're not allowed in the backcountry or on trails. And, you know, often it's too hot to leave them unattended in a car. So if you do bring your pets, there's a lot of things you aren't really going to be able to do on that visit. So might be something to think about. So things to do. You've talked about the scenic drive. We've talked about some of the hiking trails. Also, great river trips. And 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 that, if you're going to book the river trips, you use an out, a facility outside of the park, correct? Yeah, you know, river trips are a super great thing to do here in the winter months. It's cooler. The, the water levels are usually a little higher than they are in the middle of the summer. And it is an incredible experience. If you have all your own gear, you can just come. And we can help you plan a river trip. Again, you should, you should go on the park website to make sure you have all the, rec- there's some required equipment that you'll need to have. But if you're not ready to plan in that detail and you don't really know exactly where you want to go, yeah, there's a number of great outfitters that are all approved partner businesses with the National Park. There are commercial outfitters and they're located, they're physically located right outside the west entrance to the park. But they do trips every day in different sections of the river in the park. And so you can give them a call and say you're going to be here during such and such time, and they'll tell you what kind of guided trips they have available. Maybe just a half-day trip. Maybe it's a two-day overnight trip. Or they also have gear that they can rent. And they're, they're really the experts on the river. So if you even have an inkling that you might want to do a river trip and you don't know where to begin, you know, yeah, call one of our outfitters and, and get them on the phone and kind of get that information. Big Bend is famous for three huge canyons. Along the, we have over 100 miles of riverfront property that makes the southern boundary of the park. And along that 100 miles, there are three huge canyons. And that's where people really like to float. So it's Santa Elena Canyon is about a 20 mile long canyon. Mariscal Canyon is about 10 miles long. And then Boquillas Canyon is about a 30-mile-long canyon. And these are big, deep limestone canyons. They're about 1,500 feet deep. And again, just floating through there, it's not 
not a super challenging river trip. Usually it's pretty calm water, just more of a gentle, relaxing, chill out and enjoy the, the amazing scenery and the, and the sense of time that you can feel as you travel through these, this ancient rock. It's pretty awesome. That sounds incredible. Yeah, With all really of the bird species down there, I have to think bird watching is also another popular activity. Super, super high, super popular activity here. More and more so every year. Yeah, Big Ben, like I mentioned at the beginning, we have the highest number of bird species of any national park. It's about, it's over 450 species of birds. And some of them are real specialties. So people that, you know, travel throughout the year following the migrations of birds and like to see as many species that they can or keep lifeless. Big Bend is a really kind of looms large on their target, on their bucket list. We have a couple species that are really, really hard, if not impossible to find anywhere else in the United States. There's a little warbler called the Kalima warbler that nests in the Chisos Mountains, just like in one canyon in the Chisos Mountains. And so they're easy to find, but you just gotta be in that one area in the spring and summer. And we have like over 12 species of hummingbirds here, a type of jay that you rarely find in the United States. Lots of weird things show up because we're, again, we're surrounded by Mexico and we're about 29 degrees latitude. And there's lots of different habitats in the park from, from riparian along the river to desert to mountain woodlands and just attracts lots of species. So super highlight. Yeah, for sure. Do, do the ranger programs incorporate bird watching at all? Yeah, yeah. During the winter months, we have a full schedule of ranger guided activities, night sky programs. We do guided hikes. We do ranger talks. And one of our most popular types of activities are bird walks. You do guided bird walks. And we do evening programs about the birds of Big Bend as well. That's one of my favorite aspects of the park are the birds. It's just so amazing such colorful birds and they bring so much life to the desert. They just really, really add to, to anybody's experience as you're enjoying the park because birds are all around. It's pretty amazing. Any kind of year. And I, I imagine when it's so quiet, it, the, the sounds, just the, them talking is just unbelievable. Oh yeah. Especially, you know, when, as, as far as months go, time to come for the most species of birds would probably be March and April. And during that time, you know, birds have arrived from southern latitudes and they're here setting up their housekeeping and the, the dawn chorus can be like almost deafening in some places, it's completely out of control. So loud for the first few hours of the day. It's pretty fun. Oh, I love that. Camping. You've mentioned that several times, but because it's so remote and your, your peak season is so it's not 12 months a year. Finding lodging has to be a challenge when coming to this park. What options do people have in the park and what options do people have outside of the park? Yeah, so one thing related to, you know, the visitation. We've already talked about how our visitation is rising fairly significantly over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And with that, you know, a number of years ago got to the point where almost every night from October through April, all of our campsites are full. I mean, it is rare, very, very popular. So if you were to just show up to Big Bend during the winter months without reservations or without doing some planning, you might have a hard time finding a place to stay. 
So you really should do a little homework before you just hit the road. Not that you can't find camping, but you just really need to make some arrangements before you yeah. take that long drive. So in the park for lodging, there's the Chisos Mountains Lodge, and that has anything from historic stone cottages to, you know, kind of modest motel rooms. There's a restaurant. It's right in the middle of the park in the Chiso space and super comfortable and very convenient. So that's the only lodging inside the national park. But right outside the park to the west, there's our gateway community is Terlingua, Texas. And in the Terlingua, Texas area, nowadays there's quite a lot of other options. There's a number of motel units. There's lots of Airbnb opportunities. There's Gosh, you want to sleep in a teepee, you can do it in Trilingua. You want to have a really nice Airbnb, you can find it there. It, it, it runs the gamut from very, very nice, luxuriant lodging to, to rustic glamping opportunities. So you can just search camping, lodging, Trilingua, Texas, and, and lots of options will come up. In the national park, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, because you might be saying what I'm about to ask. If you're, if you're coming to camp, there's lots of opportunities in the park. We have three campgrounds that are open in the wintertime, Chisos Basin, Rio Grande Village, and then Cottonwood Campground. And typically, those campsites you can reserve up to, up to six months in advance with a smaller percentage of them open for booking only two weeks in advance. So if you can plan way ahead, great. If not, you can always try to grab one of those sites that opens up two weeks ahead of time. And then if you're open for backpacking, we have tremendous opportunities here in Big Bend. The high country, the park has over 42 designated primitive backcountry campsites and they're, they're along the trail system. And they're anywhere from mile hike to get to, to eight miles to get to. And then for those that really wanna get out again into the back of beyond, you can just, if you have the the ability to, and you're familiar enough with Big Bend, you could plan a, a week-long backpacking trip out through the beautiful desert of the park, and that's pretty popular too in the wintertime. And then, again, we have all those dirt roads in the parks. We have primitive camping along the roads, designated sites. So you can make arrangements online. You can get reservations for specific backcountry campsites where you can come if you have a Jeep or a truck, four-wheel drive vehicle, you could get way hours and hours off of the paved road and, and be all by yourself out there in the beautiful backcountry of the park. So lots and, of opportunities for lodging and camping, a little bit for everybody. And campsites are reserved through recreation.gov. That's right. Yeah. Recreation.gov. And I think your point on planning is so important because you do open those sites six months out and there's people like myself who've been stalking it for years to get yeah good sites during the peak times. So it can yeah. be, it can be challenging. I think sometimes planning is really important when it comes yeah, to the park. You know, for, for many years, it was Big Ben. We, and you may find things online still where it talks about how Big Bend is the least visited of all national parks and da, da, da. We don't really say that so much anymore because again, our visitation is climbing. And for, for decades, the camping here was always just, yeah, just show up and you'll be able to find a campsite. And I, I wish we were still back in those days, but those days are now long gone. And so, you know, we went to a reservation system maybe four years ago now. 
basically to allow people to plan a visit here and know that they had a place to stay when they got here. It was pretty rough there for a while when everything filled up by nine o'clock in the morning. It's a popular place to be. People love Big Ben more than ever. People love it. They cherish this place and more than ever they're coming. So you do need to make some arrangements beforehand. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience. Big Bend is is a designated international dark sky park. It is one of the reasons that I love it so much and am longing to spend time there. Can you tell me a little bit about that designation and why dark skies are so important? You know, dark skies are important because they're becoming rare. When Big Bend was established as a national park back in the 1940s, I don't think dark skies was, it was not on anybody's radar back then. Why would we need to set aside places to keep skies dark, you know? But nowadays, it has become one of the the top reasons that people visit here is to actually be able to see a dark sky. You know, most of our visitors are from Texas and, you know, they're coming from the larger metropolitan areas. And it's just always incredible just how many people live out their lives and don't have the opportunity to see a truly dark sky. But Big Ben, we're so far from any major development, cities, industrial activities. We're so far remote and the air is so dry that this is literally the darkest sky in the lower 48 states. And so if you want to see what that means come out to Big Bend. It's pretty profound and it blows people's minds on a nightly basis. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, you know, how many people come and see the Milky Way here for the first time? Oh. Many, many, many people. It's pretty awesome. And, uh, another thing about Big Bend skies is that we're so remote. And again, we're, we're kind of jutting down into Mexico. There are no airplanes here. So you could spend two weeks in Big Bend. You'll never see an airplane. You'll never see a contrail from an airliner flying over. You won't see anything like that at night, but you will see probably more satellites than you can count, which is pretty cool. And I think that also comes into the planning because depending on what you want to see in the dark sky, you need to plan around the moon's cycle. If you want to see certain things, don't come during a full moon, as beautiful as a full moon might be. That's a good point. Yeah. When, when in the winter months, when we're doing, we do, again, we do night sky programs at least once a week or a range of programs. And as we're getting toward periods of the full moon, it is so bright out at night. I mean, you could read a newspaper, no problem. We do guided hikes in the dark and under the full moon. Those are really, really popular too. But even when it's like a full moon out here, you can still probably see a lot more stars than you might see back home. But if you really want to get the full glory of the Milky Way, and some of the constellations. Try to plan your visit around more of a new moon type cycle or, or when the moon comes up very late at night or early in the morning, yeah. And, and the website has a ton of information on when ranger programs are happening and pair that up with, with a little bit of Googling on the moon cycle and, and people will be fine there. To wrap this up, I wanna ask you a, a series of, of rapid fire questions. Okay. What's your earliest park memory? I think it was when I was a little boy in at Crater Lake National Park. I remember being there when I was really little with my grandparents and have old family photo albums of it. And then it was exciting that I, one day later, was a ranger at Crater Lake National Park. It was pretty cool. What made you love the parks? 
just that same thing. That's what my family did when I was young. We, we got in our old beat up motor home, probably one of the first types of motor homes available, Winnebago, and we just hit the road and went to national parks. That's what we did. And I became a junior ranger at every little park we went to and we'd spend a week or so at each national park and just did big road trips every summer. And so it just, just kind of part of my upbringing. What's your favorite thing or maybe two or three favorite things to do at Big Bend? Well, number one would probably be bird watching. I'm a huge, huge bird watcher and that really has attracted me to Big Bend. I've worked here actually twice in my career. I, I left to go to Alaska for many, many years and then I came back again because I just love living and, and working here and sharing this place with people. So probably bird watching and hiking and spending time on the river are my three three top activities. What park have you yet to visit, but it's on your bucket list and why? You know, I haven't spent much time at all back East at all the historic parks back East and the American revolution parks. That is just kind of a big hole in my experience. I spent most of my life out West and I would love to take a big road trip and visit, visit some of those parks. And there's too many to count. That would be something that I'd love to do. What are three must-haves that you pack when you visit a park? Well, visiting Big Bend, three must-haves are, you know, it's a desert park. So, you know, water and a really good hat and sunscreen would be the top three things to visit Big Bend National Park. What are three things families can do at the park? I would say, you know, at Big Ben, really cool things that I know families love to do. One of them is visit the fossil exhibit. We have a brand new exhibit in Big Ben that highlights, you know, 130 million years of um, geologic time and all the life, the fossils that are preserved in those outcroppings. And so all Big Ben is just world famous for fossils. And we have an area set aside that highlights all the dinosaurs, all the strange creatures that have been discovered in Big Ben. And was, this whole exhibit was designed primarily for kids. And so that exhibit is a super cool destination for families with kids. They, they love that. I would say another really great highlight for families would be to spend some time on the river, whether you're floating the river in a canoe or just hanging out on the banks of the river, enjoying the views off into Mexico. That's a really cool thing to do. And then, you know, I think the last thing I would say is just, it's a chance for families to be by themselves. Big Bend, even at the busiest times of the year, if you're not at the main visitor center or you're not at, you know, one or two super popular trail destinations, you, you basically have the park to yourself. Unlike you can, it, you just can't find those types of experiences in many of our other large national parks nowadays. And people are finding that that is still an opportunity here at Big Bend. So getting it away from it all and spending time with your, your family and loved ones, that's, that's just really what this place is all about. What's your favorite campfire activity? I think just sitting around and recapping the day's adventures. I've had some, some amazing times with my family and friends just doing that. I look forward to those, those times. Do you like a tent or a cabin? I don't have a lot of experience staying in cabins. So a lot more experience in tents, a lot more tent time. So I would say tent. 
And are you hiking with or without trekking poles? My wife loves trekking poles. I hate trekking poles because then I can't use my hands. Uh, I like to touch things. I like to use my binoculars a lot as I'm hiking along. And anytime I have trekking poles, I always kind of seem like they're in the way. What are your favorite trail snacks? Triscuits, kind of salty crackers. Those are really good here. What is your best animal sighting in your career? Well, again, I've worked in lots of parks and lots of ecosystems from Alaska to Florida. And I have amazing experiences in all the parks I've lived in. I'd say at Big Bend, one of my most memorable experiences is one time hiking along in the desert of the park through kind of a yucca forest, yucca forest. And uh, I heard crunching sounds and I came around the corner and there was a black bear. You know, that's pretty amazing to see a bear in the desert ever. But the black bears, this bear was just standing on his hind legs, just ripping into the heart of a, of a Tory yucca, about as tall as the bear was on its hind legs. And just, there were chunks of yucca flying in all directions. There was spit flying everywhere. The bear was drooling and digging down into the heart of that yucca and just feeding on the pulpy insides. And just the sounds the bear was making, you could tell it was just enjoying that, that moisture and that, that food source and just the feeling of wildness, seeing that animal that I had not expected out in the middle of a habitat like a yucca forest. Pretty amazing. What's your favorite sound in a park? Oh, my favorite sound here is the sound of the Scots Orioles singing in the summer. So it's one of our neotropical migrant birds. They're not here in the wintertime, but we know spring is here when you hear this amazing flute-like sound of the Scots Oriole, which is bright yellow and black. Uh, and they show up and they, they showcase their songs and their looks at the top of some of the high, high vegetation and the cactus in the desert. And I was just listening to it last night here in Panther Junction. It's just an amazing kind of, kind of sorrowful, but beautiful calming sound of the Scots Oriole. It reminds me that, you know, even in the harshest of deserts at the harshest times of the year, like middle of the summer, you know, beautiful, colorful life is all around. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the Parks Podcast. We really appreciate your time and your knowledge and excitement about Big Bend National Park. You bet. That was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining this episode of the Parks Podcast. Until next time, we'll see you in the parks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like and share on your favorite podcast platform. Music for the Parks Podcast is written, performed, and produced by Porter Hardy. For more information, please follow us on Instagram at the Parks Podcast or visit our website at theparkspodcast.com.